You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 394 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, we said in the last episode that Braxton Bragg, the commander of the Confederates Army of Tennessee, had a problem. He knew that most of the Yankee army was on the move toward him, but by August 21st, Bragg had realized that he had no real idea where the main force of the enemy actually was. We talked about how Bragg had most of his army deployed so as to fight off an enemy attack from the north. Bragg had Polk's Corps in Chattanooga and Hardee's Corps a short distance to the northeast, where it could insert itself between the two federal forces led by Rosecrans and Burnside. Now, word reached the Confederates that Burnside was finally on the move, coming down out of Kentucky and heading for Knoxville in East Tennessee with 15,000 men. Confederate General Simon Bolivar Buckner had left only about 2,500 men in the Knoxville area, and since they were no match for Burnside, Bragg pulled those men back toward Chattanooga to bolster his own defense. Amid all this, William Hardee was suddenly transferred to Mississippi to help Joe Johnston, whose army was dwindling as a result of desertions and furloughs. Hardee, a good organizer, was assigned to round up stragglers and rebuild Johnston's forces. To replace Hardee, Confederate President Jefferson Davis promoted Daniel Harvey Hill to lieutenant general and sent him west. In Virginia and North Carolina, D.H. Hill had proven to be difficult and moody, but he was an old friend of Bragg's. In fact, they had been messmates during the Mexican War. It must have seemed to Davis that Bragg, surrounded for so long by discontented subordinates, would benefit from having a friend at his side. But it wouldn't work out that way. Hill found Bragg a changed man. Hill said, quote, he had grown prematurely old since I saw him last, and showed much nervousness, end quote. Their meeting, Hill would recall, was, quote, not satisfactory. There's no reason to doubt Hill's description of Bragg. After all, Bragg had ample reason for nervousness. He was getting reports of federal advances that seemed to be coming from all over the map, and it was critical that he figure out the real threat. According to Hill, Bragg told him, quote, It is said to be easy to defend mountainous country, but mountains hide your foe from you, while they are full of gaps through which he can pounce upon you at any time. A mountain is like the wall of a house, full of rat holes. The rat lies hidden at his hole, ready to pop out when no one is watching. However, it seemed to Bragg that he was looking at the right wall, that is, the country north of Chattanooga. 
All during the last week of August, he continued to receive reports of much enemy activity in that area. There were also sketchy reports of a federal presence around the town of Stevenson, Alabama, southwest of and downriver from Chattanooga, but those goings-on didn't seem significant. Then, on August 31st, a report from a civilian said that a powerful force of Yankees was crossing the Tennessee River at Stevenson and pouring into the mountains south of Chattanooga. The next morning, one of Joe Wheeler's Confederate cavalry patrols confirmed the civilian's story. But Bragg felt that he dared not shift large numbers of troops away from the northern approaches to Chattanooga while there was still a chance that the enemy's main attack might come from that direction. So Bragg wavered. He shifted a few units south, but for a whole week he sifted through the vague and sometimes conflicting reports coming into his headquarters and tried to figure out which of them to believe. Three times Bragg started to pull out of Chattanooga, but each time second-guessed himself and reversed his decision. At last, however, the evidence was irrefutable. The Federals were unquestionably in the Army of Tennessee's rear in force. Just as had happened at Tullahoma, Bragg had been outmaneuvered by Rosecrans. His lines of communication and supply were being threatened, and he had to withdraw his army southward or risk being cut off. And so, late on September 7, 1863, the Confederates gave up Chattanooga without firing a shot and marched away over the dusty roads leading south. William Rosecrans, the commander of the Federalist Army of the Cumberland, was delighted. On the evening of September 9th, he telegraphed Washington to tell General-in-Chief Henry Halleck, quote, Chattanooga is ours without a struggle, and East Tennessee is free. Our move on the enemy's flank and rear progresses, while the tail of his retreating column will not escape unmolested. Then Rosecrans sent his entire army marching at full speed after the Confederates. Thomas Crittenden and his 21st Corps were to move up the Tennessee River Valley into Chattanooga and then directly follow the rebels' line of retreat southward. Alexander McCook and his 20th Corps were sent far to the south, 50 miles below Chattanooga, with orders to get ahead of and cut off the retreating Confederates if possible. They would cross Lookout Mountain by way of the more distant of its passes, Winston's Gap, and push east. George Thomas and his 14th Corps were sent charging eastward through the middle route by way of Stevens Gap and McLemore's Cove. Thomas's orders were to, quote, strike the enemy in flank and, if possible, cut off his escape. Before getting his corps started, Thomas, a general who rarely questioned an order, made a suggestion to Rosecrans. Instead of scattering the three corps in widely separated columns, Thomas said, it might be prudent for Rosecrans to consolidate his position around Chattanooga before chasing after Bragg. The city could then serve as a secure base for the next stage of the Army of the Cumberland's offensive. 
But Rosecrans brushed aside Thomas's proposal. Old Rosie was certain the rebels were demoralized and fleeing pell-mell southward into Georgia, and here was a golden opportunity to destroy them. Rosecrans had the bit between his teeth. He was full of optimism and joy. Major James Connolly, an officer in Wilder's Lightning Brigade, wrote in a letter to his wife that he'd heard Rosecrans declare, quote, that he didn't expect to get a fight out of Bragg this side of Atlanta. There seemed to be plenty of evidence that the rebel army was retreating in disarray. As the Federals had neared Chattanooga, captured and deserting Confederate soldiers said that the Army of Tennessee was in full flight, headed south as fast as it could go. But strangely, as the Federals continued to race ahead, they saw increasingly ominous signs that the rebels weren't actually in headlong flight. George Thomas's corps, in particular, was running into unexpected pockets of enemy opposition. On September 10th, Brigade Commander John Beatty, with Thomas's lead elements, wrote in his diary, quote, Our division marched across McLemore's Cove to Pigeon Mountain, found Dug Gap obstructed, and the enemy in force on the right, left, and front. The skirmishers of the advance brigade were engaged somewhat, and during the night information poured in upon us from all quarters that the enemy was making dispositions to surround us and cut us off before reinforcements could arrive. And, in fact, that's exactly what Bragg had been planning. The Confederates weren't in full-scale retreat. Bragg had conducted an orderly withdrawal from Chattanooga and had stopped on September 9th in the vicinity of Lafayette, across Pigeon Mountain from McLemore's Cove. The stories of a panicky retreat had been cleverly orchestrated by Bragg's headquarters, as he took a page from Rosecrans' playbook and sought to deceive the enemy as to his true intentions. The supposed deserters carrying tales of demoralization and disarray had actually been sent out by Bragg's headquarters to feed the Yankees false information. Bragg had also taken the time to reorganize his army so that there were now four infantry corps, each with two divisions. In addition to Leonidas Polk and D.H. Hill, the other corps commanders were Simon Bolivar Buckner and William H.T. Walker, who had just been transferred from Mississippi. Captain Irving Buck, a staff officer in Hill's Corps, wrote that the men were eager to strike a blow at the Yankees, and they were, quote, in fine condition, end quote. In addition, Bragg knew reinforcements were on their way to him from other fronts, including Virginia. Those troops were beginning to arrive, and soon the force he would have in hand would outnumber the Federals. And for a change, Bragg actually knew where the Yankees were, and he realized that their widely separated columns were vulnerable. That knowledge allowed him to set a trap for Thomas's 20,000 Federals in McLemore's Cove. On its south end, where Missionary Ridge and Pigeon Mountain converged, McLemore's Cove was a cul-de-sac. The Confederates were blocking the passes leading eastward over Pigeon Mountain with felled trees and guarding them with infantry and artillery, and the broad northern mouth of the valley was rapidly filling with rebel troops, which would number 23,000 in all. On the evening of September 9th, Bragg sent out orders for the trap to be sprung the next morning. 
One of Polk's divisions, led by Thomas Hindman, was to move south into McLemore's Cove. There he was to attack Thomas's lead division, commanded by James Negley. Meanwhile, one of D.H. Hill's divisions, commanded by Patrick Claiborne, was to march west from Lafayette through one of the gaps in Pigeon Mountain and join the assault. Bragg's plan was a good one, but on the morning of the 10th, things begin to go wrong for the Confederates. When Hindman, who was just recently arrived from Arkansas, was part way into the valley, he began to worry that D.H. Hill's troops might be delayed in getting through the gap and joining the assault. Taking counsel of his fears, Hindman decided it would be more prudent to delay his own attack until he was certain that Hill's troops had made their way into McLemore's Cove. And to be sure, Hill's division had encountered delays. To begin with, for some reason, Bragg's orders to Hill took five hours to reach him. When Hill finally got the order, it was nearly dawn on the morning of the 10th, and he straightaway thought of a long list of reasons for not obeying. Hill claimed that Claiborne was ill and that his troops were out of position, that the barricades the Confederates themselves had put up in the gaps to block the Yankees now had to be removed and this would take time, that perhaps Thomas himself was setting a trap. Well, D.H. Hill listed all these excuses in a cantankerous message to Bragg that took more than three hours to reach its destination. Still, nothing happened. Bragg was beside himself with frustration. Captain Irving Buck of the 17th Virginia saw the commanding general pacing back and forth as he awaited the sounds of battle. Quote, Occasionally he would stop and irritably dig his spurs into the ground. At last, that afternoon, Bragg, desperate for something to happen, sent a division from Buckner's corps to reinforce Hindman. But when Buckner and Hindman met around 8 p.m., they discussed the situation and decided to do nothing. Although Bragg again ordered Hindman to attack, Hindman stayed put, although he did promise to attack in the morning. But before anything could happen on the rebel side on the morning of the 11th, the Federals made a crucial move. Negley, like his brigade commander Beatty, was seeing worrisome signs of considerable enemy activity. So to play it safe, he pulled back to Stevens Gap, through which his division had entered McLemore's Cove, and which now was his only escape route. Negley's prudent withdrawal meant that the Confederate opportunity to attack an isolated segment of the Federal Army had been lost. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In the early morning hours of September 12th, Bragg made another effort to cripple the federal army by striking a different vulnerable enemy column. This time, it was Crittenden's 21st Corps, which was marching southward from Chattanooga, right into the heart of the Confederate position. Crittenden had sent Thomas Wood's division on ahead, while he proceeded to the nearby railroad town of Ringgold, Georgia, with his remaining two divisions. Wood pushed all the way to the mouth of McLemore's Cove, to a place called Lee and Gordon's Mills, along Chickamauga Creek. There, Wood's division was only about 15 miles north of Bragg's headquarters at Lafayette, and almost that far by road from the rest of Crittenden's corps at Ringgold. That meant Wood was perilously isolated, and so close to the enemy that, unknowingly, he almost collided with Hindman's division of Confederates. Bragg knew that Wood was vulnerable, and he saw yet another chance to strike a crippling blow against the Yankees. As a first step, he ordered Polk to attack Wood. Crush that isolated division, Bragg told him, quote, and the others are yours. But the chance to give Crittenden's corps a good kicking also slipped through Bragg's fingers. Because of faulty intelligence, Bragg sent Polk to the wrong place to make the attack on Wood. And then, by the time Polk had finally found the Yankees, the odds had changed, since Crittenden was moving with his other two divisions from Ringgold to join Wood at Lee and Gordon's Mills. Now Polk decided that he was dangerously outnumbered, but in fact, the reverse was true. Polk had four divisions against Crittenden's three, and Bragg was prepared to send him more. Nevertheless, there were now more enemy troops facing Polk than he had been led to expect, and he decided not to attack. Crittenden withdrew a short distance north, and Bragg was again beside himself with frustration, but nothing could be done to retrieve the opportunities that had been fumbled away. Bragg's subordinates would later claim that his orders had been vague and discretionary, D.H. Hill would say that Bragg had issued quote-unquote impossible orders, and therefore those entrusted with their execution felt free to disregard them. Okay. Well, at any rate, the Confederates had no monopoly on ineptitude during this period of time. For his part, Rosecrans had received plenty of evidence that the Confederates weren't retreating, but were instead standing fast but he simply refused to believe it. After Negley had withdrawn from the trap in McLemore's Cove on September 11th, George Thomas had quickly reported the presence there of the rebels in force, and a few hours later he added, quote, All information goes to confirm that a large part of Bragg's army is opposed to Negley, end quote. But in, Bra- in Rosecrans' reply, he discounted the possibility there had been a serious threat and questioned whether Negley had really needed to pull back out of McLemore's Cove. 
Despite Rosecrans' almost willful ignorance, evidence that the Confederates were standing fast continued to mount. Finally, the signs were unmistakable, and at last, by September 13th, Rosecrans saw that his scattered corps were in grave danger. Pulling his forces together had become, he now admitted, quote, a matter of life and death. So Rosecrans ordered Thomas to shift his troops from Stevens Gap to Pond Spring, a position just five miles from Crittenden's Corps around Lee and Gordon's Mills. McCook, perilously exposed about 30 miles to the south at a town called Alpine, was also summoned northward. With difficulty, McCook retraced his steps westward across Lookout Mountain, up the valley west of it, then back eastward across the mountain to where Thomas had been camped in Stevens Gap. It was an exhausting 57-mile march. The men had to assist the horses and mules, as the supply wagons and artillery pieces had to be dragged up the narrow, twisting mountain roads and inched down again. The troops made forced marches of as much as 25 miles a day. In all, the long trip back took Crittenden's Corps more than four days, with Rosecrans waiting and fretting the entire time. But fortunately for old Rosie, Bragg did nothing during those days. By September 17th, Rosecrans was able to breathe easier. His army was coming together near Lee and Gordon's Mills. That meant the risk of being defeated in detail, that is, one corps at a time, had passed. But the threat of being attacked was still very real. For days now, Rosecrans had been getting reports that Bragg was being substantially reinforced. And the reports were true. In addition to Buckner's men from Knoxville, troops from Mississippi had also arrived. And two divisions from Robert E. Lee's army in Virginia commanded in person by Lee's old warhorse, James Longstreet, would be on the scene in a few days. In fact, the leading elements of Longstreet's 12,000-man force were already in Georgia, steaming toward Bragg as fast as the rickety southern rail system could move them. Originally, when the orders were issued in early September, Longstreet's men were to have traveled straight across Virginia to Knoxville in eastern Tennessee, and then down to Chattanooga, a trip that might have taken two or three days. But, denied that direct route by Burnside's capture of Knoxville, Longstreet's force had to make their way down through the Carolinas and up across Georgia, a distance of more than 900 miles. They used over a dozen railroads, and railroads of different gauges, or track size, so that the troops frequently had to change trains when they came to a new line. It was a tedious, time-consuming process. On September 15th, from Washington, Halleck informed Rosecrans that Longstreet was definitely headed south to reinforce Bragg. To counter the Confederate buildup, Halleck immediately started to issue orders that would shift troops from other fronts to Rosecrans. At the same time, Rosecrans also pressed for reinforcements from closer at hand. He urged Halleck, quote, at least push Burnside down. But Rosecrans wouldn't soon see help from Burnside, and it was his own fault. 
You see, back on September 10th, Rosecrans had sent word to Burnside up in Knoxville that Bragg was retreating down into Georgia, and old Rosie asked Burnside for cavalry only to help him in his pursuit of the fleeing rebels. Well, Burnside had sent the cavalry to Rosecrans, and then he made plans for an operation to push eastward from Knoxville into southwestern Virginia, where the Confederates had valuable salt works. That meant, even as Bragg's numbers were being swelled by reinforcements, Burnside notified Washington that he was proceeding eastward toward the little town of Jonesboro, Tennessee, whereupon the exasperated Lincoln, who was deeply concerned by Rosecrans' predicament south of Chattanooga, exploded in a rare bit of profanity. "'Damn Jonesboro!' he exclaimed, and Lincoln telegraphed Burnside to hurry southward instead to help Rosecrans. But there was no time left. Just below Chattanooga, in the dense scrub forest of northwestern Georgia, the opposing armies were now separated only by a sluggish, winding stream called Chickamauga Creek, so close to one another that a major clash was inevitable. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Chickamauga, 1863, Rebel Breakthrough, by Alexander Mendoza. This is part of Prager's Battles and Leaders of the American Civil War series. It provides a solid overview of the campaign and battle. You can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to remind you about those YouTube videos from my recent battlefield visits to Gettysburg, Antietam, Chickamauga, and Shiloh. I had a lot of fun making those videos, and I hope you check them out. You can find the link to those videos on the podcast website or on our social media, or you can just search for CW Podcast on YouTube. Yep. Okay. And then as we wrap up this episode, we want to get back to saying thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade. So thanks to Sean S., Chris W., Michael T., Alexandra W., Brian A., and Michael L. And thanks to Steve B. for his donation. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War. 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.